Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by BLAST at the Open University Science Faculty. This particular podcast comprises three more short audio sequences, two of which deal with robotics. Later in this podcast, BLAST's David Smith talks with the Walking with Robots team, and I get the chance to interview OU postgraduate student Becca Wilson about a really exciting project called SCOME that uses Second Life to engage young people with science. But first, here's BLAST's project manager, Emily Younell, interviewing Justin Cobb, Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at Imperial College London, who's been involved with the development of robotics for use in surgery. My name is Justin Cobb. I'm Professor of Orthopaedics at Imperial College in London, and I am responsible, I suppose, for those things for, for biosurgery and surgical technology in the musculoskeletal system. This weekend, the Sculpt Robot hit some of the news headlines. Can you tell me a little bit about that, please? So the Sculpt Robot is the latest product from our group. It's a small device designed to help to enable surgeons to perform operations very accurately. How does the robot account for you know, the differences in human beings? All of our operations are based on very pre- precise three-dimensional plans we make of our patients based on CT scans. We, we extract their bones from the CT scans, make models in the computer which allow us to then perform virtual surgery beforehand. So having performed the surgery in the computer, the robot then allows us to reenact that surgery in real life, first by locking the patient's own anatomy onto the um, anatomy of the model in the computer, and then um, preventing the surgeon from doing the operation wrong, stopping him from, from doing it wrong, and enabling him, helping him to do it right as he sculpts away the areas of bone that need to be sculpted away to allow us to put in the new joint replacements. Is there a danger that the expertise of the surgeon is slightly lost by doing that? Uh, no, the opposite. This, this is a, a technology that allows surgeons to become more expert, not less expert. Right. So with this technology, surgeons can start to worry about fractions of a millimetre, fractions of a degree, instead of being unable to measure three or four millimetres or five or ten degrees, which is how things are at the moment. I understand that um, you're involved with the development of the robotics. How does that work in terms of collaborating between lots of different experts? One of the wonderful things about Imperial is that it's got, as you say, lots of different experts. So we have completely brilliant material scientists developing new materials. We have um, computer scientists, um, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. And so in this example, this um, group was actually founded and started by my friend and colleague Brian Davis as a mechatronics group. I first met him in 1991 when I wanted to try and do what we're doing today. Uh, He'd already started in this area. He's a mechanical engineer and he and I recruited the other members of the team that were necessary to drive the project on. And what got you interested in the use of robotics in surgery? I suppose I first saw something called RoboDoc back in 1990-1991 which was an enormous robot designed for the car making industry that 
was doing operations very, very accurately on initially greyhounds, and they just started operating on human beings. And it was clearly a very interesting idea, but also clearly a disastrous idea. Um, they had to bolt, literally bolt the patient down onto the operating table and then stand there while this machine for making cars was applied to an unconscious person, which is obviously a bad idea. At the same time, the idea of using computer and robotic technology to perform accurate surgery is a very good idea. And Brian really deserves all the, a lot of the credit, all the credit for the active constraint technology that we've, we uniquely um, have developed, which is a robotic technology, robotic level accuracy, but the surgeon still does all the surgery himself. And I understand that uh, you also use robotics for medical students to help them learn operations. This actually started out as a project with our BSc in Surgical Technology, which is a fantastic course, one of several BSCs um, in Imperial, where students get access to the different technologies in the healthcare industry. So we asked these students to use our Acrobot technology and compare their performance with Acrobot technology to the performance of trained surgeons on patients. And what we found was that medical students using appropriate technology could achieve far higher levels of accuracy than trained surgeons were, were, required, were managing in the operating theatre. How easy has it been to persuade other surgeons to take on robotics? I, don't, I think that some surgeons are like any artisans, and we're all people who've learnt skills, are hostile to technologies they think may undermine their status. But anybody who's played with the technology sees that far from undermining them, it actually enhances their skills. So, so I think ignorance often leads to hostility. Uh, whereas experience of, of this technology, for most people who've tried it, has been very positive. And finally, where would you like to see robotics going next in the sort of medical surgery area? I think the big challenge for the next couple of decades is going to be in cost-effectiveness. We can... Doctors and hospitals can spend the entire income of any country on stuff <laughs> and our, one of our jobs is to undergo the productivity revolution that manufacturing has undergone. You can now buy really good machinery of any sort that works forever, made very very well and we've got to take medicine to that level and that's, that's the challenge. At the moment it's still just coming out of research into the marketplace and I'm optimistic that over the next decade or, or maybe even less we'll change from a slightly hit or miss religion based approach to a highly audited very high spec reliable lifetime guaranteed technology Surgeon Justin Cobb there being interviewed by Emily Unell the Open University short course Engineering the Future examines the range of human activity that we call engineering, from design concepts to the manufacture of products. The course introduces the context in which engineers operate, including issues such as product safety and patent law, 
and it looks at current engineering practice and some of the developments in engineering methods and applications that will shape the future. The course Engineering the Future offers a, a general introduction, both for those who simply have an interest in what engineering is and how it's practised in modern society, as well as those who are considering studying engineering at higher levels. And to find out more about this course, or, or any other Open University course for that matter, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study and follow the links to Engineering the Future. Well, sitting across the table from me is Becca Wilson, a PhD student with the Open University's Planetary and Space Sciences Research Institute. Now, Becca, you're involved with a project called SCOME. That's the acronym S-C-H-O-M-E, SCOME, which, amongst other things, uses the virtual world of second life to engage UK teenagers with science. Now, Tell me a bit about SCOME, the overarching project, that is, and then we'll talk in a bit more detail about the science part of SCOME that you're particularly involved with. Sure. SCOME is an educational research project based at the Open University. It's spearheaded by Dr Peter Twining in the Department of Education, and its role is to investigate the 3D virtual world of Second Life as a potential learning or teaching environment, particularly for uh, high school-age students. I mean, this all sounds very 21st century and a change from traditional educational methods, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, it's got a gaming feel to it. So um, it's engaging, I suppose, teens uh, in that respect. And it provides a more, I suppose, fun or sociable environment if you're going to be learning uh, compared to sitting at a desk at school, for example. Yeah, and that's where the SCOME comes from, that acronym. It's a mixture of school and home, isn't it? Yes, it came from... uh, the vision, not school, not home, SCOME. So an in, uh, sort of uh, in-between the two ideals, I suppose. Mm. Now, you work in the... You're a postgraduate student studying for a PhD in the Planetary Sciences and Space Research Institute at the Open University. Yeah. <laughs> and you're involved with a pretty, absolutely fascinating uh, project on SCOME. Tell us a bit about that. Basically, I was interested in the SCOME project or the SCOME initiative as a potential method to engage teenagers in planetary and space science. And I have just been spending the past year or so with some teens on this island uh, developing a competition entry to design a space experiment which will be launched on board a satellite in 2010. Your experiment is actually going into space. Well, the final. If you win it, if if we win the competition, the the winning experiment will be built by Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, and it will be flown in space. Yes. And this is a European space initiative, is it? No, this is a British space initiative. So the competition is being run by the British National Space Centre and Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. So it's entirely a British venture. And where are you actually at the moment in the in the competition? You've been shortlisted as the, the or the the SCOME project has been shortlisted as one of six, hasn't it? Yes, our team has is one of the six finalists, and currently we're developing the idea further. We're drawing upon obviously the heritage of those with more knowledge in within my department, PSSRI, as well as um, an engineer from Surrey Satellite. Technology Limited as well. So we've we've been down to Surrey Satellite and we've met with their engineers and they've discussed some of the potential flaws in our experiment. And now we're just working to resolve those issues before the final submission in September. And what is the experiment? Tell us, give us a few details about that. 
Well, the students are basically proposing an instrument that will record Earthshine, uh, but from low Earth orbit. Now, Earthshine is basically sunlight that's reflected off from the Earth. And within that reflected light, the signature of the planet is basically contained. The reason why it's interesting is because the Earth is the only habitable planet that we know of. It's obviously got ideal, ideal conditions to harbour life. And with the potential for uh, future missions, NASA missions and ESA missions in the next 10, 20 years, um, they will be actually trying to find planets around other stars to see whether or not they potentially harbour life. And so what we're trying to do is build up a reference base or a, almost like a reference database of what makes the Earth habitable and the signatures of the habitable Earth. So we can then compare it to the data brought back from these missions in 10, 20 years' time of other planets around other stars. So there really is some useful practical significance for this, isn't there? Yeah, I'm, I mean... That's quite exciting, the, the possibility of comparing other planets around other stars to that of the Earth. I mean, if, if there is something that's habitable, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, the other point is that the data could also be used um, to, well, it could be actually input into climate change models. So the simulations of where the Earth is heading in terms of the current state of the atmosphere and uh, things like that, and the effect of humans on our environment and things like that, the, the results from this, spa this space experiment could potentially feed into those models as well. So there's some terrestrial application to Yes, there is a terrestrial well. application. Now, what were the limitations? Of it? There were a whole lot. of How many entries were there for this SCOME project? Um, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea how many actual competition entries there were. Mm. But um, it was whittled down to six in uh, March. And, and where do you go from here now? I mean, you, you're, you're, work, you're developing your particular project because it was shortlisted with the, one of the sponsors of the, the competition. And what will happen next? Well, we've been, the team has been invited to the International Astronautical Congress in Glasgow, and that's in October. And at this particular event, the winner of the competition will be announced the idea is that if, for example, we are chosen as the winner, then we will spend the next nine months developing the experiment. The students will be uh, liaising with the engineers that will be actually building and constructing the experiment. And we would hope to feed some of this back into the Scone Park project. For example, we could build a life-size replica of the experiment. And instead of uh, having the path of light passing through the experiment in Second Life, you could perhaps walk around the experiment yourself as if you were the path of light. Wow. <laughs> the wonders of the virtual world. <laughs> yeah, well, it takes you places that you can't actually get to in the real exactly. world, yes. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But you must have faced some constraints because these packages have to be small. The things that you've, the thing that you've designed, I mean, should you be the winner, the thing that's going into space, there are certain constrictions, aren't there? Yeah, the competition entry requirements said that the proposal had to be no larger than 10 centimetres cubed. It could not have a mass greater than one kilogram and could consume no more than one watt of power at once whilst it's running. And the total development budget was only £100,000 which sounds like a lot, but in terms of getting space-grade materials and the paying for someone's time to actually develop uh, a concept to actually it being built, uh, that would be incorporated in in the costs as well. So it's, it doesn't leave that much um, 
in terms of the well, the space and the time and the power that you're using. So it has been quite challenging trying to find various instrumentation that could potentially be used within the the proposal or within the the Earthshine experiment. And, and this uh, the the things the work that you've been doing in the competition this is very similar to the work you're doing in PSSRI, is it for your PhD? Um, well, no, actually, my PhD is in um, planetary geology. I basically study uh, the organic uh, components of meteorites and micrometeorites. So I'm not actually a missions-based person within my department, although there are plenty of people in my department that do mis- missions-based uh, science research. So, oh, There's a lot of real forefront science going on at the Open University, isn't there? Uh, yes. The SSRI. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And what's your role in this the, this SCOM project? What, what's... What do you actually do? Well, I started out actually as the project administrator. So I was just um, registering students, uh, checking staff, doing staff security checks and things like that, and getting people from uh, who were wanting to take part in the project, actually facilitating them to join. And then I realised the potential of the project, and I saw actually that certain uh, groups such as uh, an archaeology group had been started by some of the students and language groups, German, for example. All in this virtual world called Second Life. As well as um, media media groups. So people were investigating how to make interactive art or art within the world and produce videos and things like that. So I saw the potential and decided, oh, why don't we try try and see if science can uh, get in there and have a go as well. So Excellent. Well, uh, will you promise to come back in, uh, in in October? In October. Should you be the winner, even if you're not the winner, come back and give us details of the winning prizes. But I wish you luck, you know, not only for yourself and all the other people on the uh, the SCOME team, but also for the Open University. It's a good PR for us too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Becca. That's okay. Thank you. Becca Wilson there, studying for her PhD with the Open University. You know, the OU offers a wide range of courses in physics and astronomy, and perhaps one of the most interesting of these is the residential school course called Observing the Universe. Now, believe it or not, this one-week school is held on a Mediterranean island at the Observatory Astronomique de Mallorca, where, under professional supervision, students are given the chance to do some hands-on practical astronomy and planetary science at a really well-equipped teaching observatory. Before the residential school, students on the course work through a course book that provides a general introduction to observational and experimental techniques in astronomy and planetary science. A short preschool assignment then tests their understanding of the material in the book, while in the main post-school assignment, they're required to write a detailed report on one of the projects they've completed at the residential school. It sounds like a lot of fun to me, and if you want to learn more about what this course entails, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. And now back to some more robotics. Open University lecturer Dr Ashley Green and Dr Claire Rocks are both involved with an outreach project called Walking with Robots. A blast's David Smith managed to talk with them at the Cheltenham Science Festival where they were taking a well-earned break from a series of robotics workshops they were running. Could you, Claire, explain more about this project? 
Yeah, Walking with Robots is a national network of roboticists, enthusiasts, um, people just who, who want to go and talk to the public about kind of cutting edge robotics uh, and the research that's going on within the UK universities. Uh, and Walking with Robots provides the kind of structure, support, uh, and networking for that to take place. You're bringing robotics out to children is it mainly or is it to adults or general public in general, general public audiences but I think the, the important bit is we're getting the people doing that research to come out and talk about the research and so it's scientists coming out sharing their ideas with the public yeah, what have you discovered doing this project about communicating about robots to the public well I've been doing this kind of outreach work for the Open University for almost six years now but being part of the network makes me feel part of a wider community there and uh, it makes the, the work much more enjoyable. You'll make, you make contacts with people doing similar kind of research in other universities there and we get, we, we had an excellent training workshop in Bristol back in February which uh, t helped me develop some new skills. <laughs> um, what would you say is the biggest fundamental shift in robotics? The biggest move or change that's coming is, is robots, what they term service robotics. So robots that will be in your home, in your workplace, um, everywhere really, helping you do tasks that, that you either find difficult or a bit mundane or are unable to do uh, or just you know would like some assistance with. Uh, and I think that's going to be the biggest move. So when, there's a lot of UK research labs now looking at the different technologies that will be required in order to make robots that come into your home safe uh, and sort of socially acceptable. And they have other, would these similar robots or the technology that's developed be able to be used, for example, to go to Mars? Yeah, I, I mean, there are some technologies that will be very specific, but the, the, technolo the sort of advancements in robotics technology will have a sort of crossover into lots of different applications such as uh, robots for space exploration, uh, robots for going, looking at nuclear reactors, that kind of application. If um, a listener wants to encourage their children to go into robotics or their child is interested, what can they do at home to help nurture this? You can visit our website for www.walkingwithrobots.org, uh, that's one thing, and on there they'll find a list of kind of public events uh, and links to different organisations that run uh, sort of events or courses or workshops for young people. Um, yeah. I think, um, any words of wisdom to, to somebody who's just stepping on the first ladder of robotics? I think it is a growing number of opportunities to get involved uh, on all kind of levels of the kind of robotics research, from everything from the kind of nitty gritty technology through to just discussing the social and ethical implications of it. And robots are going to be a part of our lives in the very near future, and it is worth kind of getting engaged with that now. So, do you think robots will take over the world? <laughs> <laughs> a common question. No, I don't think they will. I think we're. we're a very long way away from them being intelligently capable of that kind of uh, self-election of things to do uh, on that level and we have robots that can sort of autonomously find their way or avoid obstacles but having something that sort of is sentient and able to choose to take over the world. David Smith there talking with Open University lecturer Ashley Green and Claire Rocks. 
You know, one of the Open University's most popular science courses is called Human Biology. It's a course that presents human biology in a way that connects it directly with health and disease. The course starts with the concept of a healthy body and explores the mechanisms that enable the body to maintain its integrity. And although the course deals with the physiology of each body system separately, its overall emphasis is on interaction and coordination. Human biology provides students with sufficient background to appreciate how systems can fail and what kinds of medical interventions can be successful. The course is suitable for science students, especially those who have a background in biology. But it will also appeal to anyone who is interested in health or who works in health and social care or other professions allied to medicine. You can find out more about this or any other Open University course by visiting www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Well, that's the end of this podcast brought to you by BLAST at the Open University Science Faculty. For other podcasts in this Takeaway Science series, revisit the Open University Science Faculty website at www.open.ac.uk forward slash science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU, then visit the BLAST webpages at blast.open.ac.uk. Anyway, that's all for now. So from me, Mike Bullivant, uh, adios amigos.